Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I do not know that we can enter a war of imposts with Great Britain or any other foreign power, but we are certain that this war has been waged against us by the former, professedly, upon a belief that we could never unite in opposition to it. And I believe there is no way of putting an end to, at least of stopping the increase of it, but to convince them of the contrary. Our trade in all points of view is as essential to Great Britain as hers is to us and she will exchange it upon reciprocal and liberal terms if an advantage to the U.S. is not to be obtained. Years before his election as president, George Washington was already thinking about U.S. foreign policy, as this letter to James McHenry from 1785 suggests, and his voices on our relations with foreign nations would ultimately have monumental ramifications for the American political landscape as well as the history of the nation and the world. Hello, and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. As stated last time, this episode will focus on the agitations at home and abroad related to U.S. foreign relations in Washington's first term. We'll return to the western frontier next episode. Since we haven't discussed the foreign landscape in much detail up to this point, we're going to need to lay some groundwork to establish a basic understanding of what's going on in the world before we can discuss how it affects the U.S. in general and the Washington presidency in particular. Ready? Then let's get to it. As a number of you are likely aware, 1789 was not just the year of Washington's inauguration, but it also marks the traditional starting point of the French Revolution, namely, the fall of the Bastille. Less than three months after Washington's inauguration, crowds of Parisians stormed the Bastille prison, a symbol of the authority of King Louis XVI, or Louis XVI, as he's known en français. Not only did they liberate the few prisoners that were being held in the prison, but they also beheaded the governor of the prison and a Paris city official. Now, we neither have time nor is it within the scope of this podcast to go into the details of the French Revolution. Should you like to learn more about the French Revolution, I highly recommend the third series of episodes of Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which provides an in-depth examination of the events and characters of the Revolution. For our purposes, it is important to note that While events were going on at the Bastille, Thomas Jefferson was still serving as U.S. Minister to France and was having tea with a friend when he learned of what had occurred at the prison. Jefferson had served as minister since his appointment as a diplomat to Europe in 1784 and had played a key role in continuing the work of his predecessor as Minister to France, Benjamin Franklin, of working to expand American trade with France as the first step towards overcoming the European mercantile system and opening new markets to American goods. He had made some progress towards these ends by 1789, with Jefferson scholar Merrill Peterson asserting that while, quote, 
The total volume of the trade between the U.S. and France fluctuated little and was about the same in 1789 as it was at the beginning of Jefferson's tenure. There had been a significant concession on the part of the French in their opening up trade with the French colonies in the West Indies to American trading, which was, quote, a bonanza for the Americans and a small disaster for the French. Events in mainland France, or the Metropole as it was known, would come to threaten this progress. Jefferson had reported back to the new government about the recent agitations in France, and had even asserted in a letter 16 days prior to the fall of the Bastille that, quote, This great crisis being now over, I shall not have matter interesting enough to trouble you with as often as I have done lately. After July 14th, however, Jefferson was asserting to Madison that, quote, This scene is too interesting to be left at present, despite his prior request to return to the U.S. As we've discussed in past episodes, however, Jefferson did return to the U.S., but not before advising the revolutionary leader, the Marquis de Lafayette, who had played a key role in the American War for Independence, on the development of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which was adopted by the French National Assembly on August 26th, and hosting at Lafayette's request a dinner for eight members of the National Assembly in late August, during which the Assemblymen worked out key compromises for the new French Constitution. Jefferson had the luxury of being on hand for the most idealistic time of the French Revolution, as he described it, quote, the first chapter of the history of European liberty. And it was with this optimism that he set sail for America to, unbeknownst to him at the time of his departure, take up the role as the chief minister of foreign relations for the United States. This warm attachment to France would cause him to recommend in his report on American commerce in 1792 that the United States pursue an expanded commercial relationship with France in order to break free of its current dependence on trade with Britain, a relationship which he felt was stacked against American interests to the benefit of the British. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To Jefferson's credit, the United States had a number of issues with the British that remained unresolved from the American Revolution. As Jefferson outlined in a report on December 12, 1791, not only did the British still retain possession of outposts in the western lands that had been granted to the U.S. by the Treaty of Paris, they also still had border issues in the east to settle, along with a resolution of some sort insisted upon by slave owners whose slaves had been, quote, carried away by the British, Boston residents whose property had been taken by the British during the occupation, the owners of ships that had been taken as prizes after the cessation of hostilities, and Maryland and Rhode Island claimed debts owed them by the Bank of England. The British had not helped matters in 1790 by proposing that their troops march through the Mississippi Valley from Canada in order to attack the Spanish during an international kerfuffle known as the Nootka Crisis, due to British ships being seized by Spanish forces in Nootka Sound off what is now British Columbia. Though the crisis was resolved before the U.S. had to take action, it represented the first of many conflicts between Jefferson and Hamilton on the subject of U.S. relations with the British, with Jefferson aghast at the idea of the British marching through U.S. territory to attack another sovereign nation, while Hamilton felt that the British should be placated at all costs, and that, should the British force the Spanish out of their North American territories, 
so much the better for the U.S. This polarization got to the point to where, by March 1792, Jefferson was making notes to himself on British commercial relations, in which he was listing Hamilton's proposals on British foreign policy, then outlining his own opposing viewpoints. Again, to Jefferson's point, the American position in relations with the British was quite weak, and American dependence on British commerce arguably played a large role in that. Turning back to Jefferson scholar Merrill Peterson, he even admitted that, as, quote, the Americans exploited these French commercial markets due to Jefferson's negotiations while serving as U.S. minister to that nation. The U.S. then transferred most of the money balance in their favor to the support of British industry. There was a significant trade imbalance, as Jefferson noted in a report to Washington of December 23, 1791. Our exports to Britain were of a monetary value less than half that of our imported goods. Meanwhile, we were raking in profits hand over fist from French exports, with the value of our imports with France being just over a tenth of that of our exports. In Jefferson's mind, the answer to all this was to trade more with France to offset our dependence on British goods and put us in a better position to bargain with them on wider diplomatic issues. The only problem with this was that things were changing for France at home and abroad in the 1790s, while Britain remained relatively stable situations of which Hamilton was keenly aware. Though Hamilton himself had acknowledged the imbalance in trade with Britain in the 11th Federalist Essay, published in late October 1787, and had argued that, quote, by prohibitory regulations on trade, extending at the same time throughout the states, we may oblige foreign countries to bid against each other for the privileges of our markets. He would, in order to ensure no inadvertent damage to the British trade, which he saw as key to the repayment of the public debt and the foundation for his national fiscal policy, come out in opposition to proposals by Madison and Jefferson to lower or eliminate tariff fees for British merchants in light of the U.S. commercial treaty with France. As he explained in a letter to Jefferson in January 1791, quote, my commercial system turns very much on giving a free course to trade and cultivating good humor with all the world, and I feel a particular reluctance to hazard anything in the present state of our affairs which may lead to commercial warfare with any power. To Hamilton, submitting to a present state of insubordination in the British trade was a necessary evil in order to ensure the long-term security and stability of the nation and its economic system, and there were no qualms about it. The British knew that they had the upper hand and intended for that to remain the case. A secret report prepared in January 1791 by the British Committee of the Privy Council for Trade and Plantations ultimately found its way to Jefferson, which outlined that not only had the British share of shipping and the Anglo-American trade increased, but now even the British had identified, quote, that a party is already formed in the United States Congress in favor of a connection with Great Britain which by moderation on her, i.e. Britain's part, may perhaps be strengthened. The Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian factions in the government would act as rather of a carrot and stick respectively in relations with the British. Between Hamilton's encouragement during his conversations with unofficial British emissary George Beckwith in March and April of 1790, and the threat by Jefferson, Madison, and their faction, to retaliate to unequal policies by the British on American shipping with discriminatory tariffs, the British finally did something in late 1791 that they hadn't done since the Treaty of Paris had ended hostilities. Namely, they sent an official diplomatic minister to the United States. 
though a small concession by the British of legitimacy on the government founded by their former colonies. It was arguably ultimately to the advantage of the British as George Hammond would be the eyes, ears, and mouthpiece of his government on the ground in Philadelphia to help to assure continued British dominance in Anglo-American trade. As we'll see as we get into Washington's second term, foreign representatives would come to play a key role in influencing administration policy. In case you thought that foreign intrigues began in 2016, wait until you hear about Citizen Genet, but that's getting ahead of myself. Before we swing back around to the French, I did want to mention the other prominent figure in U.S. foreign relations at the time, mainly due to its territory sharing a lengthy border with the United States, the kingdom of his Catholic majesty, España, or as we know it in English, Spain. As noted in episode 1.7, though Spain had allied with the United States in its War of Independence, more as an excuse to get Gibraltar and colonies along the Gulf of Mexico back from the British rather than for any strong feeling of empathy for the American cause. By the time the government under the Constitution started up, tensions had developed due to Spanish intrigues in the lands west of the Appalachians and, consequently, the unwillingness of Spanish officials to open up the Mississippi River to American trade. The Spanish, after joining the Revolutionary War on the side of the United States, had launched military operations against the British out of St. Louis that they used as justification for claiming the lands east of the Mississippi to the Appalachians as far north as the Tennessee River. However, Great Britain did not recognize Spanish claims to the land in their peace treaty and instead guaranteed both the southern border of the U.S. at the 31st parallel well south of the Tennessee, as well as the right of U.S. citizens to navigate the Mississippi River in the Treaty of Paris, despite relinquishing control of West Florida. As Americans swarmed into what would become Kentucky and Tennessee following the war, and started using the Mississippi to ship goods, which had been a right of citizens of British North America before the war, the Spanish realized that, if they were to follow through with their policy of containing the new United States to the eastern seaboard, they would have to shut off that trade. Thus, in 1784, navigation of the Mississippi through Spanish territory was made the exclusive right of Spanish citizens. This navigation became a bargaining chip and a point of contention both in American negotiations with Spain as well as nascent movements to leave the United States fomenting in the West. The issue would be allowed to simmer for a bit when Spain allowed navigation on the Mississippi upon payment of duty fees, but ultimately a more permanent resolution would have to be reached one way or another, before the tensions got out of control. Situations with the French, however, were already out of control, not just in the country proper, but in its most profitable colony, and indeed, the most profitable European colony in the Western Hemisphere. Now, in most histories that I've read that touch on the influence of foreign relations on the early republic, there's often talk of how negotiations with the British and the French Revolution, and even occasionally talk of relations with the Spanish, but the Haitian Revolution is rarely discussed, though it has finally started getting more of its due consideration in more recent scholarship. For the longest, the fact that the second European colony turned nation in the Western Hemisphere was one organized and predominated by people of African descent, which also was, as historian Robin Blackburn notes, quote, the first major breach in the hugely important systems of slavery in the Americas made this a problematic subject for historians who were predominantly Caucasian to discuss, given the prevailing social discriminatory mores and stereotypes. According to Blackburn, this accomplishment of, quote, 
Jacobin revolutionaries and the black peasantry has not been a comfortable one for the traditional national historiography in the United States or Britain, which has increasingly seen the perceived innovation of their respective national abolitionist movements as a mark of pride. Likewise, the Haitian Revolution, quote, has become awkward to discuss even in France as the Jacobin period has been viewed with increasing distaste and embarrassment. Either through attempts to suppress the accomplishments of people of African descent or to add greater emphasis to the accomplishments of people of European descent, this has been a story largely untold in American historiography until late, and thus we're going to spend the remainder of this episode on it since, as Blackburn pointed out, quote, the survival of Haiti had implications for the future of slavery in the Americas and tested and tempered the outlook of the abolition movement. The reason Haiti, or as it was known to the French, Saint-Domingue, was so profitable is that it supplied half of the coffee and sugar consumed by the world at the time. These goods were produced by 500,000 slaves, the highest density of slaves in the hemisphere. We'll talk more about the slave system and early abolitionist movements two episodes from now, but the most important thing to know now about the Haitian Revolution is that it has its origins in the French Revolution, and specifically the Declaration of the Rights of Man. There were three main groups in Saint-Domingue, the whites, the free coloreds, and the slaves. The whites were by far a minority in the colony and were themselves divided into two distinct groups, the plantation-owning Grand Blanc and the working-class Petit Blanc. In the latter years of the 18th century, the whites had been attempting to take rights from the free coloreds, people of either African or mixed-race heritage who were free and in some cases, owners of large plantations and a large number of slaves themselves. The 30,000 or so free coloreds in the colony began to demand that their political rights be affirmed by the law of the new National Assembly, and indeed, they were well in their rights to do so, as the discourse in metropolitan France was focused on, quote, liberty conditioned on public utility, property, and membership in the community. A number of the free colored were property owners and had long played a key role in the colony's community, sometimes even more so than the whites who, if they even lived in the colony in the first place and weren't absentee plantation owners, saw Saint-Domingue as a means to an end and would return to France as soon as possible once their fortunes were made, or, for government administrators, as soon as their tour of duty was over. This debate continued, both in the colony and in the National Assembly, until, in August 1791, around 20,000 slaves in the north of Saint-Domingue rose up in rebellion. This rebellion was violent, and it was quickly apparent that it would not be easily quelled. Washington first learned of rumors of the rebellion while at Mount Vernon around September 23rd, and soon had letters from numerous individuals, from U.S. and French officials to private citizens, giving him details on the situation in Saint-Domingue. He also learned of a request from the French minister to the U.S., Jean-Baptiste Chevalier de Tonon, to Hamilton of, quote, an amount not exceeding $40,000 in order to purchase, quote, large supplies of provisions to be speedily forwarded to Saint-Domingue. Despite the fact that Hamilton was described by his biographer, Ron Chernow, as being, quote, conspicuous among the founding fathers for his fierce abolitionism, Hamilton informed Washington that, on the, quote, full authority from you in relation to payments to France, he had, quote, not hesitated to answer the minister that the sum he asked is at his command. It's easy to understand why the slave-owning Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson would be against what would prove to be, quote, 
the only successful large-scale and generalized slave revolt known in history. But what was Hamilton's motivation for supporting slave owners? As seen in his policy towards Britain, Hamilton was willing to sacrifice his ideals if national security and future prosperity were at risk. He was an American first and an idealist second. Saint-Domingue played a crucial role in the global economy of the time, and the slave revolt threatened to upend all of that, something that Hamilton likely could see would have ramifications for the U.S. When Hamilton discussed emancipation, he thought of it as a lengthy, gradual process, which is what he had proposed in New York. The immediate self-emancipation of slaves in Saint-Domingue he pronounced to be, quote, calamitous. However, the situation quickly became even more complex, as suspicions started to arise that the white planters who had formed themselves into a colonial assembly and were suspected to be royalists would declare independence from France. Jefferson, still fresh from his prior mission to France, quickly noticed royalist tendencies in the refugees coming from Saint-Domingue and was likewise suspicious of them, but not nearly so much as the French minister in Philadelphia. French minister Tournon withheld supplies and funds from the efforts on Saint-Domingue for fear that they would be used against French authorities. Jefferson thought this to be a ludicrous overreaction that threatened the opportunity to restore order and regain control in the colony. After failing to persuade Tournon, Jefferson wrote to U.S. Chargé in Paris, William Short, to have him discuss the matter with the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. Jefferson even brought up the possibility that Tournon's actions may drive the colony to seek assistance from the British, and the last thing Mr. Jefferson thought the Western Hemisphere needed was another British colony. Jefferson was quite right to fear this possibility, as the white colonists, when military aid failed to appear from the French, did indeed turn to the British. The British, however, were more concerned about containing the effects of the French Revolution and ensuring that slave revolts did not begin in their own colonies in the Caribbean, so they did not take action in Saint-Domingue for the moment. There was indeed reason for the British government to fear such possibility, as the events in Saint-Domingue would ultimately inspire several dozen slave revolts in the Caribbean region. But that's a bit ahead of where we're at now. We will return to Saint-Domingue in later episodes. But for now, just know that this colony, just over a thousand miles from the shores of the U.S. at the time, represents what had been a recurring fear of American slave owners, and would contribute in, quote, instilling a sort of permanent panic in the minds of New World slave owners. For now, let's draw this episode to a close. Next time, it's back to the West to see what's been happening since St. Clair's ignoble defeat in an episode I'd like to call Mad Anthony and his Legion. Until then, I'd love to hear any questions or comments you may have. Please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. I'm also available on Twitter at presidencies89. Sources used for this episode, and believe you me, there are a ton of them for this one can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I did want to share that I will be attending the annual conference for the Society of Historians of the Early American Republic, or SHEER for short, in Philadelphia in July. If any listeners are attending the conference as well, or if you're in the Philly area, please feel free to reach out. 
I'm very excited about getting the chance to see in person so many of the sites that I've read about, especially as we've been going through the Washington administration. While looking through the many historical sites available for me to check out during my trip, I actually stumbled on the answer to something that I didn't have an answer for in episode 1.8. It looks like the Supreme Court met in the old Philadelphia City Hall beginning in 1791 until the Capitol moved to Washington, D.C. in 1800. This building is now part of the Independence National Historic Park, and it's one of the sites on my list to check out during my trip. I plan on sharing some of my experiences during the trip via social media, as well as afterward, possibly in a special episode. Stay tuned for more information as it comes. Until then, thank you as always for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.